like to open us with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, start off our next, uh, our, our new study this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we are not only grateful to have been brought here this morning, uh, called here this morning, uh, but we, we also sense that you have brought us here for your glory. Uh, you are so good that um, as we walk in your ways, we find great uh, personal blessing. We are, we are blessed by our friendships with one another. We're blessed as, we are, uh, as we're sanctified and as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Uh, but Lord, we know that we are here for your purposes. We're here for your glory and not for our own. And we thank you, Lord, for the honor of being called by your name. We thank you that you have saved us. And I pray as we, as we go through this study this morning, and then for the wider service, the, the entire service this morning, Lord, we, 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 oh, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, that we would sing and pray and sit under your word in ways that are honoring to your name. And we thank you, Lord, for all the ways that you have given us uh, that you're using to conform us to Christ's image. Please do that this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me reintroduce an old friend to us this morning. Do you remember, you remember this guy? Uh, you may have forgotten, but this is the main text for our adult Sunday school for 2019. If you've forgotten, it's because we've just finished 14 weeks in the one of the in-between studies. What we're doing this year is we are seeking to know God better and seeking to learn how to live out that knowledge better. So we're bouncing back and forth. Do you remember that? Between uh, sections of this book on the doctrine of God, uh, and then each time we finish the sec- a section, we're doing a specific study trying to flesh out what we've just learned about God uh, in that particular time. And... Um, so we just, uh, let, let's do a little bit of a recap of where we have been and where we're going to finish out the year. I think I've got, uh, David, do you have the slideshow pulled up? Yeah, that's it. Oh, oh, good, okay. You added a slide to my thing, so everyone would turn off their cell phones. That was a good idea. Um, Doctrine of God, this is uh, the, the study that we're about to get into. We'll start this uh, morning with a chapter on the names of God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, here is where we are in the scope of the whole year, and because of some additional, some uh, having our missionaries come and speak to us and things, the 2019 schedule now goes into February of 2020, but that is okay. Uh, we are right where you can see the, uh, you might be able to see the blue there, uh, who is God, the names of God. Uh, but what we've seen so far, you can kind of look, look up from that. We started the year thinking about the idea, the, the, the biblical teaching that God is Lord. What does it mean that God is, is Lord over his creation? Uh, and our attempt there was to develop and to continue to grow a high view of God. We went from that into a few weeks uh, of a video series. Do you remember um, Calvinism and the Christian life? They really focused on the Christian life element. Um, how do we, uh, what are the implications of a high view of God in our, in our daily lives. Um, we came back to this book then and went through the next section, which had to do with human responsibility. Oh, you know what? I have a, I have a laser pointer here, too. Uh, human responsibility, human freedom, 
uh, and the problem of evil. And the question there was, uh, how does this sovereign God that we're learning about, how does that reality relate to the fact that we are sinners, uh, that, that we are weak, uh, and that we, in fact, according to Scripture, have real responsibility that the Bible speaks of? How do those things go together? So we try to wrestle with that. Um, that study of human sinfulness and weakness led us into what we just finished, Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Uh, how do we, um, if that's what we're like, and we're all like that together, then what is our responsibility uh, to each other as we're, as we're walking as God's people uh, and we understand the, the urgent call that the Bible gives us to, um, to grow together into the image of Christ. So that's the study that we just finished, and so now we're back into this book. And what we're going to do now for several weeks is look at, this section is, is all about biblical descriptions of God. Uh, how does the Bible describe God to us. So when we, when we study um, specifically the Holy Spirit, we're studying pneumatology. When we study what the Bible says about the church, we're studying ecclesiology. Right? Uh, this would be considered theology proper, the, the study of God himself. This is what we're going to be going into. Uh, when we finish these weeks, we'll move to what I think will finish out the year for us, I believe. Um, Stephen Nichols' book, A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. So we'll be applying this knowledge of a big God to our own tumultuous times. Uh, And then we'll finish out, what was going to finish out the year, when we get into January, February, we'll come back here for the last time and look at the doctrine of the Trinity and its implications for us. So that's where we've been and that's that's where we're going. All right. Um, Let me show you something. Do you remember seeing these triangles all over the place for a while in uh, adult Sunday school? Does this ring any bells if you've been been with us through the year? Uh, As we get back into uh, Frame's doctrine of God, uh, it's good to to remember what this is. Can anyone give voice to sort of a summary of what, what, what we've said is represented in this triangle? Who would like to try that? This is me getting audience participation and not just making you listen to me the whole time. So don't let me down. Somebody can remember what this is. It's the Trinity. It's not the Trinity. But when we get the Trinity, we'll still be sticking with triangles. Frame likes triangles. I'm about to give the answer. Anybody? Oh, man. C minus. What is, what is being represented here? In, uh, with this triangle. Tom? Yes, absolutely. His relationship to his creation. And the word that we've been using all along to express that is that his relationship to his creation is one of lordship. So this is Frame's definition in a picture form of what lordship means. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of God as Lord? When it uses especially his covenant name, Yahweh, what is, what is it speaking of? And what he's done in the past for us is he's gone through, I mean, exhaustively, when God speaks of himself as Yahweh, what are the situations and uh, what is the reason that he's giving that name? And this is what he is, uh, he's putting that into this sort of threefold picture, that God's lordship means fundamentally three things. It speaks of his control over his creation. It speaks of his authority over his creation, which are not the same thing. 
Control has to do with his might and his power to do his will. Authority has to do with his right to do his will. Remember, we talked about how a bully has the first but not the second. A bully has all the power and control to do what he wants, but he lacks the authority. God possesses both. He has the strength to do his will, and he also has the right to do whatever he pleases. So we, we read things like, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And the third piece of the triangle is his covenantal presence, that as Lord, he is covenantally with uh, his creation. And so we've spent a lot of time looking at that, uh, and I just summed it up in about a minute and a half. But maybe that gets you back into a bit of a frame of mind. Remember that he's calling this um, doctrine of God a theology of lordship. So he's looking at all of the things that we're going through, sort of through that lens. Um, I bring up the triangle, though, for another reason, and that's because we're going to see, we see another triangle in this section that's, that's, that's unrelated to that. Um, when, we, when we think of how does God uh, describe himself to us in Scripture, uh, and Frame's going to say, essentially, as God is giving self-description in the Bible, he does this in three ways, fundamentally. The first is what we're going to see this morning, that uh, the Bible describes God by use of names. God names himself to us in Scripture. But that's not all that he does. He also describes himself through the use of images. So we see pictures painted of who God is. Things like God is a shepherd. That's, 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 a, that's an image of, of God that conveys true things about God. Right? Uh, the third is that of attributes. So names, images, and attributes. This is, this is sort of where we're going. This morning we'll talk about the names of God. Next week we'll look at images and then for several weeks after that, uh, we will be thinking about God's attributes as they are uh, revealed to us in Scripture. Now, there are several things we need to see about how these, how these go together. Um, we use each of these descriptions to see God more accurately. And it is, uh, these are proper. Uh, an image and a name are not exactly the same thing. right? Uh, that, that makes sense. But one of the things that Frame tries to make clear in this chapter is that we have to be very careful that we understand that these three different uh, means that the Bible has for describing God are not competing with each other. They're not doing three different things. So they are, in some very real senses, uh, we could use two words. They are interrelated to each other. God's names help focus and correct our understanding sometimes, if necessary, of, say, God's attributes, and the other way around. I may read uh, Jesus say in, I think it's John 4, uh, I may be way off, that, uh, where he says that God is spirit. I may read that as a description of, of, of who God is. This is an attribute of God, you could put it that way. And I might do some thinking on that and let myself go to some very wrong places with it. God is spirit. Well, let's, so maybe that, in my mind, that means sort of that the deists were right, that he's just fundamentally other than us. He's out there. So his spiritness means I'm on my own. I might be tempted to go that way. And then I find, in, for example, the book of Ezekiel, that when he names the New Jerusalem, when God names the New Jerusalem, where his relationship with his people is consummated, he names it. Yahweh Shammah, which means God is there. 
I might see that God names himself Jehovah-Jireh, as we'll look at this morning. And that means the Lord will provide. So these ways I might be wandering, all of a sudden God names himself in a way that makes me realize, oh, no, 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 I can't think about God in a way that would suggest that he's not, he's not present with me. He's not the provider for me because he calls himself. God will provide. You see, these things can work together to have those, those sorts of effects. So they're inter- interrelated with each other. Um, Frame says this. He says, It is good for students of Scripture to use these names and attributes to focus and correct, excuse me, to use these names and images to focus and correct their understanding of God's attributes as well as the other way around. Uh, the other thing that he says is that these attributes are in some ways interchangeable, um, or these descriptions, uh, they are in some ways interchangeable. And here's what he means by that. You have places like, do I put it up here? No. You have, you have places like Exodus 34.14. Exodus 34.14 says, The Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So that's interesting. It, it, it names jealousy as this as this true uh, description of who God is. And he feels comfortable even taking that attribute and, pl- and giving it to us as a name. His very name is jealous. This happens a lot, where the Bible uses attributes of God to address God as if they were names. Psalm 9, 2, and in many other places, calls, it says, O Most High, and goes on. Well, that, that is O Exalted One. God is high, he is exalted. That's a description of God. That's an attribute of God, and yet it's given as a name for him. So the Bible seems to use these things in interchangeable ways. We also see that with images, too. Uh, Shepherd is an image that the Bible gives us concerning uh, God's relationship to us. But in Psalm 80, the Bible addresses him like that. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel. Well, is it a name or is it an attribute? And his point is, while these are real categories, these ideas are, are, inter, are interrelated to each other. The book of Revelation uses the, the image of Jesus as lamb in a, in a naming way. It calls him lamb, uh, things like that. So those are some, uh, just as we're thinking about all three of these, these ways that God describes himself, and we're going to break them down now into weeks and think of them separately. But it's just good to see at the beginning. They're not, so, they're not different from each other in that way. All of them serve the same purpose. And that is, God is revealing himself to us through these means. Uh, now, before we go any further, uh, I, I'm going to put one slide up here and say a, just a little bit. Uh, at the beginning, we might not bring it up again for the next five, six weeks. But it's good to have said this at the, at the outset. Um, we do run a particular risk when we start, especially when we get to the attributes of God and we start breaking them out. It puts us in one way in, in a bit of a dangerous place um, in our own thinking. I can accidentally come to think about God in a way that is, that is not true about him. And I'm, the, the way that we protected ourselves from what I'm trying to describe historically is in, in a particular doctrine. All right, So did you know that the church has essentially always held to what we call the doctrine of the simplicity of God. Sounds really odd. The simplicity of God. What in the world are you talking about? Um, It is a concept that is not what its name suggests at all. 
Uh, the simplicity of God does not mean that God is simple to understand. It does not mean that this doctrine is simple to understand, because it is not either. Um, I'm just going to put up a couple of very simplistic uh, explanations here. Uh, hopefully will help you to know why I'm even bringing it up, and maybe I'll fail miserably. And if I do, then just let it all roll off of you. It doesn't affect the rest of, of this morning. But um, God is simple. What we mean by this is we mean he's simple as opposed to composite. He is not a being made up of a bunch of pieces. That would be a non-simple being. God is simple. So he is not composed of parts. He's not made up of a combination of parts. Um, God's existence is necessary. And what we mean is that everything about God is necessary to God. God does not have spare parts. So there's nothing about God that he could just decide to shed and still be God. There is nothing like that. That's what this doctrine is is upholding and protecting. Um, Everything about him is absolutely essential to his being. Um, This is something that... um, I'm trying to decide how much to go in on this. Oh Well, it's just... Maybe you can see why... um, why this could be a danger? If, I, if we're going to spend weeks thinking about specific attributes of God, that makes it sound like what we mean is that God is fundamentally, what is God like? He has, some, he has goodness to the utmost. He has wisdom to the utmost. He has power to the utmost. Take all those things, put them together, and what you have is the God of the Bible. But there's a deep problem with that because that would suggest that these are things that exist outside of God that he just happens to to have. All of these things we're going to see in the weeks going forward find their very definition in the person of God himself. Um, this This is, I think, the only long quote of frame that I'm going to put up here this morning, if I remember right. I've tried to get better at avoiding long quotes, but here is one. Um... Here's what he says. He says, It is important to see the unity within this complexity. He's speaking about the nature of God as as three in one, right? There is complexity and unity in God. He says, To see it, we should remind ourselves that our covenant Lord is a person. What is God's goodness? Here's a great example. What is God's goodness? Is it something in him? It would be more accurate, I think, to say that divine goodness though it sounds like an abstract property, is really just a way of referring to everything God is. For everything God does is good, and everything He is is good. All His attributes are good. All His decrees are good. All His actions are good. There is nothing in God that is not good. To praise God's goodness is not to praise something other than God Himself. It is not to praise something less than Him, or a part of him, so to speak, it is to praise him. God's goodness is not something that is intelligible in itself, apart from everything else that God is. And we just want to start this series with some of these sorts of statements having been made to help us all keep in mind, as we're talking about this morning, the many names of God uh, and many attributes of God in weeks to come, that we are trying to speak about a being that is essentially simple. All of what we're going to see in the, in the weeks to come, all of it is what it is to be God. And that means that all three members of the Trinity, while different in person, 
But what, is, what do we believe about the Trinity, right? Uh, one in essence, while different in person, all three members of the Trinity are this. So this, this was, was a very uh, meager effort to just insert some of these ideas about simplicity before we get into this. So we can remember what we're doing is seeing the one God from many angles as he reveals himself to us. And we'll talk more about some of that as we go on. Um, should I even ask for questions before we... No, let's, let's we'll just keep going. Um, okay, so uh, in light of um, the fact that we've returned to a book that loves triangles, let's structure our time this morning by, by, with three questions. All right, we're going to go through three questions uh, in the time that we have. Question number one, thinking about the names of God in Scripture. What does it mean for us that God has given himself many names? Why didn't he just give us one name? But what does it mean for us that he's given himself many names? Number two, uh, why has he named himself at all? And then number three, what names has he given? So when we get to three, the first part of it will really just be a listing out of the names God has revealed himself by and their meanings. And then we'll think about that a little bit. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, Question number one, what does it mean for us that God has given himself many names? Frame describes some people who take this concept that God has many names. There are many names to describe God. Uh, He describes some people who take that idea as license for imagination and for uh, legitimizing any name of God. So people who will even go into non-Christian religions and take their names for God and say, let's learn from these things. He gives two examples in particular. I even found their pictures, so we could out them a little bit. John Hick is one. Uh, He wrote a book called God Has Many Names. And his idea in that book is that since God has many names, we may freely use terms of our choosing, including non-Christian religions and philosophies, in our attempt to describe God. That's where he goes from this idea that God has many names. Uh, And these are under the category of unwise suggestions of what, uh, what does it mean for us, right? We would not suggest these things. Another one that he gives is a woman named Elizabeth Johnson. She is a Catholic feminist theologian, and she wrote a book called She Who Is. You can already see where, where she's going with that. Um, and here's her idea in that book. Because God is unknowable, we need to come up with a proliferation of names and images and concepts to speak of him slash her because he is unknowable. So this is what we do with our life is we just, we just go out there and work to, to, to build up these names. She's, you can tell from the title of the book, She Who Is, she's advocating a feminist reconception of God. Um, and just wait till next week when we get to the chapter on images that uh, Ken gets to deal with. Frame has a, sec- a really interesting section about God's choosing masculine self-descriptions in in, in the Bible, he asks the question, what would a female God be like? Uh, And uh, it is really, it's pretty interesting. So you can look forward to that next week. Put a lot of pressure on you there, Ken, uh, out in public. So um, what does it mean for us that God has given himself many names? The the many names that God gives, the fact that there are many, that indicates something to us. It's in itself... Uh, teaching us. So here are some better suggestions. Um, one of the things it teaches us is that uh, as we are 
on a road trying to come to know God better, which we know the only way to walk that path is to look to the scriptures and to ask God who he is because that's where he has revealed himself. But the fact that within the Bible he gives us many names means that as we, as we walk that path here, uh, it's going to inevitably, inevitably be a multifaceted road. But, see, some of those people say the very same thing. They draw really bad conclusions from it, right? Um, The path toward knowing God is going to be multifaceted. However, there are some things uh, that we as Christians understand that are missed in those places. And that is that as we pursue knowledge of God by learning about his many names, we will be, in fact, being led to true knowledge. I'm not just imagining ideas of God in my own head and coming up with names. If these are all names that God has given to us, then every time I come to know him through those names, I am coming into real knowledge of God. I'm truly growing in my knowledge of who God is. Frame says this. He says, Scripture does not justify any general assertion that God is unknowable. God is not unknowable in the Bible. His names communicate definite content. And they are part of a broader revelation that tells us about him, even his essence, in considerable detail. Uh, The multitude of biblical names enables us to learn about him from many finite perspectives. But God is, and here's the difference we need to... uh, He says, God is incomprehensible, not unknowable. He has revealed truth about himself. Well, what would, how would you express, anyone want to try to express the difference between those things? God is incomprehensible, but he is not unknowable. How would we distinguish between those two? Does comprehend mean to know something fully? Right. To come to wrap my, my, my arms around this idea, this thing. You put it like that, and it gets pretty, pretty simple, doesn't it? There are a lot of things that I do not comprehend, but I know some things about. Probably my wife is not a bad guy. I can, she's not in here. So I, I don't know that I could say I, so I fully comprehend my wife, but I sure do know her, and I know her better every day, right? I mean, how much are we ever able to comprehend in some exhaustive way? Uh, when the Bible declares God to be incomprehensible, it's only speaking about our finite limitations, Uh, in terms of our capacity and in terms of the fundamental difference between creator and creature. But if I say God is unknowable, now I'm saying something else. Now I'm saying something about God. Now I'm saying that God is not able to convey any real information about himself to his creatures. If I can't know anything about him, that means he was unsuccessful in his attempts to reveal himself to me. And so what are these names about? The fact that he has given us names tells us that we can know true things about God and that he's he's given us many names. It tells us that we've got a lot of work to do. He's revealed himself to us in many different ways. Uh, As he does that, real information is being conveyed. Um, And the second point up here is that um, we will be guided by his revelation of himself because the revelation is from him, not from us. Um, lost my place here for a moment. Okay, so um, 
hopefully this helps with that with the first question in terms of why has he what does it mean for us that he has given us many names it means that God is knowable uh, it will be multifaceted in how we come to understand him he will not be comprehensible but he is knowable uh, second question uh, why has he named himself at all and what are the implications for us we've already kind of touched on this question a little bit but there's more to be said here um, the act that he has named himself makes a number of things clear to us it makes clear uh, our dependency uh, we are dependent on his decision to reveal himself we could say it like this we don't know his name unless he gives us his name right I don't know his name unless he comes and condescends to me and reveals himself to me in that way can you think of a place in scripture where we are asked to name God does he ask us for his name does he ask us to name him he never does that he comes and reveals himself to us and often in doing that he gives us names to call him um, as he comes and does this not only does it show that we are dependent on God but it also shows his willingness to condescend to us the, the, his naming himself to us is an act of condescension on God's part it's indication that God has freely chosen to reveal himself to his creation um, you can tell I, I've done a poor job of marking where I need to click so I'm trying to not give things away yep don't look at that yet um, God's name speaks of God himself so as he gives us his name he is giving himself to us and so this is an interesting thing that frame has in the chapter I had to kind of read a couple of times to understand it I'm still on my way but he what he says is that for God um, giving us his name is a giving of himself uh, when he gives us his name he is entering into an act of covenant with us he is committing himself to us as he reveals his name to us maybe that's probably a good way to say it and it's it's really interesting to just look through he, he lines out a number of things in um, especially in the Old Testament where God's name is said to do certain things so this is all under this idea that God is covenanting with us as he is giving his name to us so in the Bible his God's name is said to do all of these things Psalm 20 his name defends us Psalm 54, his name saves us. His name is to be trusted for deliverance. Um, his name, when his name dwells in a place, there's a moment there in, um, well, in a couple of Deuteronomy, but also 1 Kings, where it, it says that his name came to dwell in a place. And the result is that that place immediately is a holy place. You need to take your shoes off because the name of God is there. It's just an interesting way for them to have put that. Uh, it kind of speaks to what we started with, that names and attributes are not, they're very much interrelated to each other. Um, and they are, because he's simple, these things are descriptions of God himself. When God's name is in a place, God is there. Uh, Moses asks to see God's glory in Exodus 33, and God answers that request by expounding his name to Moses. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, in the New Testament, God's name is the explanation for many miracles that are happening, uh, caused by the name of God. Now, you can kind of see in a lot of these places, name is really shorthand for authority, it seems to me. 
That is, we can see what Frame is talking about when he says these are expressions of covenant. If part of God's covenantal relationship with us as our Lord is this possession of authority, then his name, it's not a surprise to us that we find his name standing in for the idea of his authority. And this happens in a number of places. God's giving us his name is an expression of his lordship over us. And in fact, Frame is going to say in one place, he says, names in general, and God's names in particular, reflect the lordship attributes of control, authority, and presence. And I'm skipping over some of that in, in our lesson this morning. If you have the book, it, it'd be good to, it's interesting to read through how he lays out those three expressions that we see with God's name of, uh, of um, control and authority and presence. Um, God's names are, are, are covenantal to us. Before we get there, uh, one more quote from Frame. He says, The name Yahweh denotes him as Lord of the covenant, and other names indicate different aspects of his covenant relationship to us. Now, that, we're going to see that here in just a minute as we start to look at long lists of names that God has named himself. What he's saying there is we have this name that clearly stands out among them, Yahweh. This, this is a name that he, he reveals himself to Moses with this name, the Lord of the Covenant. Um, and Frame is going to be making the case that in many of these other cases, these other names that God gives, uh, they're not doing something different than that. They're doing something more specific. So you'll see with these names to come that they, they speak of specific elements of God's relationship to his covenantal people, God's relationship to his creation. Uh, all right, so this will make more sense as we come into this third question. Uh, what names has he given? Let me do just stop since we're shifting to number three. Any thoughts or questions at this point? Don't be shy. I think we'll, we might even be a little bit early this morning if no one asks any questions. No, this is good. Well, with, with this chapter, with those parts in the chapter helped me with, and I say helped, but I, I'm still, I can tell I've got a lot of thinking to do about it, but it makes me think when I have come across those places in Scripture, I have, I have simply thought of them as a metaphor, and I think in a way it's, it's metaphorical use, but Frame seems to be saying it's, it's a little bit more than, than just that. Um, and when you see it, you suddenly can't unsee it. You start to see all the places where God's name is what is highlighted. That Jesus, it, it, what's, what's celebrated is that in the resurrection and ascension, he's given a name that is above every name so that every knee shall bow. Now here's authority again there with this name, right? Um, he likens it in the end of Matthew by saying, all authority has been given to me. But when it's spoken of elsewhere, it says he's given a name that's above every name. It really is. It, I read this and I think there's, there's something here that uh, I certainly have, <laughs> have more time to... I wish he would have done more with the other. Of course, this chapter is on name, but the idea of God's identity with his word and himself. And you think of John and the, I mean, the word became flesh. There's, yeah. It, I don't have much to add to what you're saying, but I think you're pointing at something important. <laughs> That's very helpful response of mine, isn't it? Um, let's, let's, let's look at some of these names. He, he really names, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ken. There are no bits, so he's giving us himself. 
There are no bits of him, so he's giving us himself. Yes. Absolutely. Do, doing something with names is very different than what we do with names today, where they have no meaning. If you didn't hear Kin's talk, highlighting this reality that in the Bible, names are, aren't just names. They are expressions of, really, of essence, either of, of essence currently or of, of a desired, um, you know, parents will name their children things. That child isn't that yet, but the name expresses, the, at least in that case, the hope of what, of what, what they would become. Um, there's, I didn't, we're not going to go through it this morning, but there, this is one of the things I meant about the, some of the interesting things he, he talks about with covenant that we're leaving out this morning. He talks about how uh, names denote control. So when God, God names us, uh, he, he exerts control over us when he names us, when he names people and these sorts of things. When he reveals his name to us, when he gives us his name, it's almost as if he is giving some this I hate the way that frame put just maybe it's the words it may be very uncomfortable, but I think we know what he means. He, he said it's almost as if God gives something of uh, gives up control to us of Himself. Now that ugh. but what he means is now that we know His name, we can call upon His name. Now we can reach out to Him with His name, and there's and because there's a, there's a covenantal obligation and responsibility and relationship. We can cry out to him, and he hears us, and he responds to us. He has bound himself to us in covenant by giving us his name. It's just beautiful and, I think, useful statements like that. That um, I, I don't know if I'm the only one that gets the shivers when I hear someone talk about God giving us control of him. But, but the, I, see what he's, I see what he means. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a very good point. And there, he, he talks more about that, and it is, it is helpful. I just didn't. I think it was helpful enough to put in here. So, um, what names has he given? Let, I'm, we're just going to go through a list here of names and meanings. Don't uh, so just stick with me, and then we're going to we're going to look at them as a whole, especially. All right. So the first name, uh, the one that we must start with, I think, is the name Yahweh. Uh, Frame says here. I've actually put a quote of his here. To summarize, Yahweh names God as holy and personal, the Lord, the head of covenants with Israel, the nations, and the whole creation. His lordship draws our attention particularly to his control and authority over all creatures and his presence in the created world. We've talked about that uh, already this morning. Uh, Some more names here. God names himself to us. uh, Adon. Adon, you put, which means lord or master. We have sung, at least in the past, songs that, that, uh, I don't know why, but what's her name? Uh, Amy Grant, yeah. Her, Amy Grant pops in my head here because of her, uh, uh, I forget the rest of it, but she says Adonai in her song. El Shaddai, that's right, that's the song. Um, you put the, the first person possessive at the end of this and you have Adonai, that just means my Lord, but his name is Adon, which means Lord. And this is just an, an emphasis on his ownership of creation. Uh, Elohim is, is, is given as a name, for God, this it has some relationship to Yahweh in terms of what it's expressing, but it, it is different as well. One of the things that's especially different about Elohim is that it's used commonly also to just speak of gods uh, in, in Scripture. So false gods are referred to as Elohim as well. But he, he, he says we've got to be careful to not assume then 
that this is a name of God that isn't specific, doesn't have specific meaning in God himself. And he talks about how even in covenantal situations in Scripture, God takes this name sometimes and not Yahweh. So there is significance in, in the meaning there. Um, just the word El. Another emphasis on might. Uh, we're not quite sure as far as its root. It might just be a shortened form of Elohim, but a lot of people think that, no, this is something specific and different. Uh, how many do we have on this slide? I think it's just these. So before we go to the next slide, notice already that outside of Yahweh, what we have so far are, are specific names that refer to covenantal attributes, in particular control and power, God's power. Um, there are a number of names in Scripture that God gives for himself and that his people ascribe to him uh, that are compound names. And these are always, I think they're always, uh, either combos of El and something or Yahweh and something. And notice the meanings of these. With these compound names, we start to get even more specific and varied in terms of what's being highlighted about God with these names. So we have uh, the... The, they, uh, they heard Amy Grant's uh, album, and uh, they named, they gave this name after, no, so El Shaddai, that was a bad joke. She got it from them. Uh, El Shaddai, name of God, and it, it, it means God Almighty. Now here we get into some harder to pronounce names. Yahweh Sebaoth, which means, and we, we usually say Sabaoth, right? S-A-B-A-O-T-H. You ever seen that word and go, the name is spelled Sabbath. Well, it's, it's, it's this word, and this is a name that's used a lot for God. It means Lord of hosts. What do you think's emphasized there? I mean, this is the, the, these are the hosts of angelic armies. This is still a name highlighting the, really, I think, both the power and the authority that God has. Uh, we have El Elyon, God Most High. Frame says this with El Elyon. He says, The metaphor of height refers to the reality of God's control and authority. He is exalted as, a, as the king. So God is high, not as an object is placed high, but as a king or nation is exalted by his dominion over all things. So a name highlighting the exalted status of God, El Elyon. Uh, we have Yahweh Yireh, uh, the Lord will provide. Genesis twenty two fourteen. God has called this. This is Jehovah Jireh, right? That's that's this name. Um, God's named that after you remember in that chapter, Abraham's about to sacrifice his son, and God stops him and provides a ram in his place. And God is named there, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. God provides in all circumstances. He feeds the birds. But what's what's being especially emphasized here? The provision of a substitute, the provision uh, in, in atonement sorts of terms. God will provide for his people. Uh, here's another one hard to say. Yahweh Rofeka, the Lord who heals you. Exodus 15, uh, God calls himself this when he promises to keep the diseases of Egypt from his people. He says that, that I am Yahweh Rofeka. I am the Lord who heals you. Here's a long one. Yahweh Mekadeshekim, the Lord who makes you holy, for goodness sakes. Now we're getting very specific. Uh, Exodus 31 and Leviticus 20, 
both name God in this way, the Lord who makes you holy. It makes us think, I, th I think, doesn't it, of the command, be holy, for I am holy. That is God's command to his covenant people. Uh, and Frame says, God in Christ makes his people a holy nation because he, the Holy One, is their God. And this is his name. He is the one who makes us holy. Yahweh Shalom means the Lord is peace. Gideon names him this in Judges chapter 6 uh, when he builds an altar. Or actually, I believe he names the altar that. There are a number of, some of these names uh, are names of specific places in reference to historical events that God has done. Um, and they, so they're, they're naming those events, but they're, all, but they're doing that. They're naming them after the truths that God has revealed about himself in those events. Uh, last one that I have here, I think, on this list. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And that, that is the right translation. It doesn't mean the Lord is righteous. It doesn't mean, it, it means the Lord, first person, plural, the Lord our righteousness. Now what is being highlighted with that name? Jeremiah 23, 6 uh, names him that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. Oh, we'll read this again here in a minute. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is an amazing statement. Jesus became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. It's pretty amazing. The... Yeah. Uh, we, we call those names, those compound names, with Yahweh. Yahweh something. We call them Yahweh compounds. So Frame says, the Yahweh compounds then all speak of redemption from a number of perspectives. Did you see that in those, in the names? He will provide. He heals you. He makes you holy. He is peace. He is our righteousness. Now, do you hear Redemption in all of those names that God gave to us of himself in the Old Testament. The Yahweh compounds then all speak of redemption from a number of perspectives. They tell us that God is so intent on redeeming his people from sin and all its effects that he names himself in many words as their savior. We should think of him as provider, healer, sanctifier, peace, righteousness, and presence. And we should find all of these in Jesus. So he's making a connection that we haven't so explicitly made yet. The connection between what God is telling us about himself in his names and what he tells us of himself in the person of his son. So let's go back to those names again. Do you notice that these, we've kind of seen this already. You can tell, can't you? These are not unrelated to each other. These are all painting one picture. Yes, they're not the same thing. God will provide is not exactly the same thing as God heals you. But they're not painting different pictures. They're coming together to paint one picture of who God is. And the names themselves denote truth to us about God's nature and his behavior. We learn real things about what God is like from these names. And we learn true things about how he acts, what he does. What his behavior is like. God's nature expressed 
uh, in behavior uh, for all of these names finds this expression where fundamentally. Uh, where do we essentially, so we can believe God when he tells us, my name is, is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Where do we find the supreme expression of the truthfulness of that, that God, in fact, provides for his people? We don't find the supreme expression of that in the book of Genesis with the ram, do we? The Lord who <coughs> the Lord who heals you. That's expressed every time I get better from a from the flu, that's expressed. Where is the, where is the supreme way that the that, that truth of that name is expressed for us? The Lord who makes you holy, that's an easy one. Where's the supreme place that that name is put on display as true? And we could do that with each of these things. The Lord is peace, the Lord our righteousness. What, what's the answer to that question? It's in the person of his son, isn't it? In the cross, that's exactly right. That's right. We shouldn't wrestle. I've wrestled a lot. Which is the more significant moment in history? Is it Jesus' incarnation or is it Jesus' crucifixion? How can you put one down? But I, no, the supreme moment is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is the place where God's names are put on display to the fullest. Are they put on display in his coming and being born? Of course they are. But, but the cross is the supreme display. I think we can safely make that, make that statement. If you want to argue about those, we can talk about that afterward, if you really like the nativity especially. Um, remember here, we are studying the names of God. We're not studying Christology here. We're looking at how has God named himself in the Bible. And yet, as we're looking at that question, the only place for us to end is... With Jesus, where we look at the multifaceted way that God has revealed himself to us. This week, through the names of God specifically. Remember, we've got images and we've got straight out attributes coming. But looking at the names of God this morning, we look at the multifaceted way he's revealed himself to us. And what we see when we put all of these together is we see Christ. That's what we see. He is God Almighty. He is the possessor of all authority and strength. So he can say, before Abraham was, I am. Not just an expression of his eternality, but an, an actual taking of the name Yahweh on his mouth. That's why at one point he answers a question with that phrase and people fall down around him. They know what he's doing. He takes the name Yahweh on himself. And he can say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's the possessor of all uh, authority and strength. He is God Almighty. He is the one who makes you holy. Right? He is Yahweh Makidashekim. That's Jesus. Even as he himself is the Holy One. This is where our holiness comes from. He is our righteousness. We already read it in 1 Corinthians 1. Christ became to us righteousness. And he is our peace. What does the Bible say about Jesus and peace? What's, this, what's another name that Jesus takes? embodies from the Old Testament. He's called the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2.14 says it explicitly about Jesus. He himself is our peace. He is these things. So Hebrews 1.3 will say of Christ, he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. 
Jesus will say in John 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? I think it's really helpful to think about those things just through the avenue of names. All of the names God has given us of himself, they all served to prepare us to see God in the person of his Son. So if I want to worship God, it is fine for me to sing to Jehovah Jireh. I can pray to the name. That, that is God's name. That, I can do that. That's appropriate. I could even come up with a new name here from this list that I didn't know before, and I could sing praise to Yahweh Sidkenu, because that is, a, that is a name God has given us of himself. But see, if I sing and pray and praise the name of Jesus, I'm already checking all the boxes. I, I praise Jesus, and I sing to all of those names, all at the same time. They're all pointing to him. I find that to be a very powerful uh, picture thinking about those names. What, what are your thoughts, questions? We have about probably two minutes. Oh, gosh. That's a big can to open with two minutes left. It is. He, and Sproul loves that stuff. And there's those things, yeah, you're going to put me, you're going to make me. Um, I, I, I think what Sproul's doing in that is, is fine. And, and Sproul is especially helpful in helping us to see some of the more some of the more complex implications of some of these things, um, where I think he could even be in danger sometimes, and where we just have to be careful is exactly what you said. Um, Our concern has to be, how has God revealed himself to us? Uh, I don't think that the the notion of unmoved mover is is, um, wrong in the way that it's, in what it's trying to express. But remember how I said, I I can understand that God's a spirit, and then go, draw some really bad implications from that, that's nothing compared to what I can do with God as the unmoved mover if I'm not, if I'm not settled in. This is, this is God telling me not only what he's like, but how I am allowed to think of him, right? There's a lot true about God that I, that I don't know. He hasn't revealed every detail of himself in here. I'm not allowed to let my thinking and defining of God go outside of the the pages of Scripture, and so if that's our if that's our concern, then then we can we can be very protected. I, does that answer your question? No, it's not the name. It's not a name he gave me to address him by. I'm going to address him by the names he's told me to address him by. I hope I'm not alone. I hope we're all standing right there, shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> no, that's right. It's <laughs> There's a lot we could, we could say with that. Any other thoughts? All right. Next week we get into images of God. We get to hear Ken lay out what a uh, female God would would be like in a set. If he wasn't planning to go there, now he has to because I've mentioned it. Okay. What's that? Okay. <laughs> Good. All right. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we are amazed to stand back and look at the list of names that you have given us of yourself. So many of your people for so long were met with these names, addressed you by them, believed them. But they did so uh, 
in faith in a way that we do not have to. They did so. While, while being a people waiting and hoping for the Messiah, still not sure what it was going to look like when you, when you would embody the truth of these names in their fullest form. You have always been for your people our hope. You have always been our righteousness. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We don't have to uh, stumble around in the dark trying to imagine how these things are true or what they would look like. We need only look to the face of Jesus. Said, If we have seen him, we have seen the Father. Everything we need to know about, about you, Lord, and all your divine goodness, we see in the person of your Son, and we thank you for him. We thank you that he became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us through, and we're focusing this morning on the way you have kindly condescended and given us names, shared with us names that convey truth about yourself. We thank you for that, Lord. It has been precious for your people through all, all time. We fundamentally, though, move past the names themselves, and we thank you for the name of Jesus, in whom all of these names find their fulfillment. Father, be with us now as we have time to fellowship, to hear uh, how our brothers and sisters are doing, how our weeks have been, to pray with each other, to rejoice and to mourn together. And Lord, we thank you for the service to come, where we will be able to lift our voices together and worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.